This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Burt Fields, a sports medicine and family medicine physician for Cone Health, as well as professor of sports medicine and family medicine at the University of North Carolina. Dr. Fields, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Nice to speak with you. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm looking forward to learning more about what you're doing at Cone Health because I know sports medicine is such an important and dynamic field. And certainly a lot has happened, especially in the last few years around the different um, treatments and technologies. But before we dive into that question, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Well, I was interested in sports medicine even way back in training, but I didn't want to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was a family physician and I wanted to go to rural practice. But I wound up taking lots of extra months of orthopedics and worked with NASCAR drivers and covered football games and did a lot of sports medicine in my training. And then I moved to rural North Carolina, a little town of 1,500, and I was out there delivering babies. But I I got very busy taking care of four high schools, and I was taking care of the American Whitewater team would train at the Nantale Outdoor Center, and I would take care of those athletes. And then a lot of... uh, mountain bike racers and different groups, and I just got more and more interested in sports medicine. So I came back to Cone Health in 1984 as faculty for the Family Medicine Residency, and one of my goals at the time was start a sports medicine program. And so in 1992, we opened one of the first sports medicine fellowships in the United States that became accredited. And uh, so started teaching sports medicine more uh, gradually, it crowded out my family medicine, uh, actually, until I was pretty much full-time sports medicine the last 10 to 12 years. Uh, but started that in 92. We've graduated 70-something sports medicine fellows who have gone out into practice now. And uh, so I've continued teaching with that ever since. And it's been so much fun. It's allowed me to uh, be a visiting professor in 10 countries internationally and see what they do with sports medicine and to cover lots of amazing sports events and other things. Well, that's amazing to hear. I love the evolution of your career story and really, you know, at the heart of it, just being able to take care of patients in your community. I can imagine, you know, it's such a different experience, like you were mentioning, delivering babies and just providing all that care and then being on the sidelines at sporting events and having the opportunity to work with elite athletes as well as, you know, kids as they're growing and developing um, within their athletic abilities. So, you know, you mentioned having worked in so many different countries in, in athletic events. Um, which, I, I guess, of those countries has been your favorite experience and what really stands out to you as something that, you know, you were really glad you were able to um, able to do during your career? Well, I, I did a three-month sabbatical at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. And I just love working with the Australians. They're, they're some of the best-natured people in the world. And uh, in addition, uh, they just have been on the cutting edge of trying to, you know, support their sports teams, which is one reason why, for a fairly small country, they've been outstanding in the Olympics, and uh, they have a wonderful sports medicine program. So staying there, I, I lived actually on the campus with the athletes and 
spent three months working in the clinics and working with the athletes and with their other faculty there. And that was just a great experience. So that would probably be the highlight of my uh, best international experience. Although I also spent some time, interestingly enough, most recently, one of the most exciting places I spent was in Turkey. And I was just fascinated to see what a good job they're doing with uh, trying to incorporate sports medicine into some of their educational programs and so forth in Turkey. Plus enjoyed so much traveling around with my Turkish colleagues and seeing some of the ancient uh, sites in Turkey and other things. So it's really worldwide that sports medicine has expanded and uh, uh, the experiences you have internationally are always amazing. I I can remember being in China before the Olympics and trying to teach the Chinese doctors who were not trained in a Western system how to do exams of different joints and things. So it was almost a totally new experience for them. They used more traditional Chinese medicine, and so they weren't used to the way we would handle an injury, for example. Well, that's fascinating to hear, and certainly, you know, great to see how the field has expanded and um, able to share your expertise with different countries. And then, too, it seems like such a great adventure to, um, you know, be able to explore the world in that way. So um, that's really impressive to hear. Now, what are some of the biggest trends that you're following in healthcare and sports medicine today? Well, I think... What we're going to see is a real push uh, for integration of better evidence into how we do things and why we do things. I mean, we already know that certain things we've done for years, for example, just to give you an example, meniscus surgery on the knee is one of the most common surgeries done arthroscopically throughout the United States. But Recent studies would show that if you do a meniscus surgery on an individual over the age of 50, they don't really have any better outcome than if you just put them in a good physical therapy program. So that totally changes the paradigm of how we would treat that injury for the older adult. Only in a few situations should we do surgery for the tradition was we did surgery on all of them. So, so that's, how evidence will come in and influence what we do and how we treat athletes. And a lot of that gets back to questioning a lot of things that we've thought all along. Does it really make a difference? For example, there's a shoulder repair called a slap repair. Well, it turns out slap repairs don't really work if you're over about 35 to 40 years of age. So don't send patients for that if they're above that age. Try your best to find a good program to help them get their strength back and rehabilitate. So as we get more evidence, we need to incorporate that evidence, and evidence requires research. And so there needs to be ongoing and steady research into how we do things uh, and how we do uh, things in a way that's best for the patient and sometimes not the most expensive for the patient. Uh, there are a lot of trends going on that may not really pan out. There's lots of trends of using orthobiologic implementation with platelet-rich plasma stem cells and stuff, but the evidence behind that is minuscule. Uh, Really, we don't have any strong papers that would show that we've made a meaningful clinical difference by using those treatments in sports medicine type of situations. So, So I think the field is steadily changing. I think evidence and protocols are going to come out that help us do a better job of getting our patients 
well and at a sooner time frame. And um, I think we'll incorporate that into, particularly with all the online resources we have in medicine these days, to help guide physicians to know what to do at an earlier phase in an injury than we've done in the past. I love that. I think it's so important, as you were saying, to have that data and have that information as you're developing a treatment plan and understand what's going to likely work best. Now, you know, when you look at um, being able to incorporate all that data and all that information, that's not something you always had at your fingertips. What is it like being able to um, make that transition from, you know, kind of what was traditionally best practice to now actually having the, the data and information behind you? And, and you know, where do you see that uh, kind of close eye on, on data evolving um, as time goes on. Well, you know, the interesting thing now is I think you could be in the middle of rural Africa and sometimes have as good access to the information you need to treat things as you would have in the United States. And part of the reason for that, and this is somewhat of a shameless plug because I'm editor-in-chief of sports medicine for a publication called Up to Date, but the reason I bring it up is up-to-date goes to about 2 million physicians. It goes to 180 countries. It's an online resource. And the challenge we have in that publication is that if a new paper comes out this week, as the editor, I'll get a copy of that, and I'm asked to review it and say, do we need to update the information we have in this online resource right away? And if so, I've got to get up with the authors of the particular topic and be sure that they review it quickly and that we put the information into the published resource, the online published resource that goes out to so many people. So I see that having a universal source of really current information is going to be critical, and that's also going to get into the realm of artificial intelligence. If we use artificial intelligence just to search Google or the Internet or whatever, uh, we're going to get a lot of bad information. On the other hand is what the big online publications that are going to be evidence-based are going to do. They are going to limit the search to papers, topics, resources that we know are well peer-reviewed and are evidence-based. And then you can take artificial intelligence and the answer you get will likely be very helpful for you in caring for the patient. Absolutely. That's great to hear and, and definitely, you know, exciting to think about um, the, the future of how the technology and artificial intelligence could potentially boost and, and support and augment some of the things that clinicians are doing. Now, when you look ahead for the next year or so, what are you most excited about and what makes you nervous? Well, the thing I've actually been most excited about for the last few years is the new sort of implementation of technology, particularly diagnostic ultrasound. And we'll use diagnostic ultrasound right in the office. If you come in with a shoulder injury today, I'll be able to tell you in a few minutes whether you've got a rotator cuff tear or just a tendonitis or, you know, what's going on in your shoulder. Because I can take a scan and see the tissue quite well on most musculoskeletal parts. And the beauty of the technology is that Technology can advance so rapidly that let's say that if there is a software program out already that is starting to take technology, so if I was scanning your Achilles tendon, technical coloration would color the tissue in the tendon red that was badly damaged, 
black if it was totally torn in a, or in a hole, yellow if it was moderately damaged, green if it was totally normal. So I can tell you how much of your tendon was damaged. That gives me a better idea of predicting how long it's going to take you to recover from that. It gives me a better idea of how much I can push you in terms of the rehabilitation you're going to do. So that's one aspect of the technology. Another aspect may be to be able to take the software we have and recreate a three-dimensional structure just like we do with CT or MRI. But the advantage of ultrasound is it's inexpensive. Uh, we can carry it in our pocket and show it on our cell phones or on a little tablet or whatever. We take it to the sidelines all the time. In fact, I send my fellows with portable ultrasound to every event they cover and to every clinic they're in, they have portable ultrasound with them. And then we have better ultrasound machines in, the, in our uh, formal clinic. So I think the technology advance, particularly that's just one example of technology that we're using, but the technology advance with diagnostic ultrasound is going to totally change the patient experience so that rather than have to wait three weeks to get an MRI on a lot of conditions, you go into the office that day and within 15 or 20 minutes, you've got a scan and a picture of what uh, you've injured. So that is a wonderful trend in sports medicine. We've made it a part of the requirements and training for getting certified in sports medicine, and it's going to move rapidly and advance as technology advances. So that's the thing that excites me most right now. I love the way we're integrating that into the practice. The thing that bothers me the most is that we see a real challenge in staffing uh, and covering high schools and all the uh, sort of sporting events we're doing. And part of that is we're having a struggle to get enough athletic trainers trained and to have the support of, and this takes political support for the school systems to have the money to put an athletic trainer at all the sporting events. It seems like the politics has often cut some of the funding to particularly the public schools, which we cover a lot of, and so that they're not able to get athletic trainers, and the athletic trainers now are training at a higher level to where they have basically a master's degree equivalent, so they'll make more money if they move on and work in a private office or work for a college or a higher level institution. So I really worry that we're not going to have as good a coverage for high school and recreational sports around the country as we've had in the past just because of this loss of the ability to get the type of help we need on the sidelines with athletic trainers and and also with recruiting some of the people into our offices to help with that sort of care of the athlete. Absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's definitely helpful to understand that insight. I, I um, really appreciate you talking through some of the different things that are happening with ultrasounds and um, exciting to know some of the technology that's out there. I'm wondering, you know, um, when you talk about some of the challenges in connecting with um, the high school athletes and the funding and, and those types of things, um, is there anything that, you know, um, you're able to do or, or ways that you are trying to um, continue to build and grow the sports medicine program at Cone Health um, to serve those uh, populations, even when it becomes challenging from a financial standpoint? Uh, one way is we've tried to partner with our public schools. One of Cone's, one of Cone's principles is we care for ourselves and we care for our patients and we care for our communities. And so in caring for our communities, we've tried to set up partnerships. So for example, 
I'll hire an athletic trainer in my office who can be work as a medical assistant and have a, a very good salary that way. Uh, and But I will carve out time to allow them to spend every afternoon during football season at the high school from three to six or something. Uh, so we're working on partnerships. We're trying to work with our communities to provide these people. And then the other thing is that we want to be a part of the educational programs to train more people in our local universities and colleges to study athletic training. So that means having physicians play a part in teaching and uh, getting more involved in providing that in a way that financially helps the colleges who may not be able to fund it fully by by being partners with them and good community citizens uh, as a healthcare system. I love that. What a great idea and what a great way to really make sure you're supporting the community and then looking ahead for the future of um, building the athletic trainer pipeline as well. Now, before we wrap up here, what advice do you have for sports medicine physicians just entering the practice now and looking to build a career as a leader in the field? Well, I really think that a young physician uh, can never see too many patients and can never read too much. I mean, experience is such a wise teacher. Uh, and so the more experience you get, the more capable you're going to be in terms of dealing with a lot of the things you will see in your sports medicine career. And the a physician who leaves training with a pretty good knowledge base is going to be obsolete in four to five years if they don't keep up. So the other thing that you have to do is you have to read and stay current with what's happening in your field and become as evidence-based in the way you practice medicine as you can possibly be. Evidence is what allows us to be successful in finding the best strategy for getting people better. So if you're not following the evidence and if you're not keeping current, you're never going to become an excellent sports medicine physician as you move away from your training. So the challenges I would see is, one, making yourself the best version of yourself you can be in terms of education and learning the evidence behind what you're doing. Secondly, I think it's absolutely essential that as a young physician, you get out in the community. One of the ways that I wound up advancing my career was uh, I was a competitive runner and I volunteered at all the running club events and covered lots of races. And pretty soon I was seeing uh, an increasing number of elite runners coming in others. And, and as they know, as they find out that you know how to work with them, you get invitations to speak at times. You get invitations to attend and cover big events. And the same has happened because I play a lot of tennis, but I was involved with the tennis community. And so I see lots of really fine uh, tennis competitors who are coming to the office and other things. So being involved in the community, covering your football games, covering your races, covering your your uh, big events, it is a way that you get known as a sports medicine physician, but it, it keeps you current as well and, and keeps you connected with a great group of people. And then I think the last thing to realize is that most sports medicine is not taking care of elite athletes, college athletes, or even high school athletes. It's taking care of adults who want to be uh, physically active and have a better life. So I think sports medicine is a perfect marriage with wellness efforts. So I would encourage any physician to learn as much as you can about 
that exercise is really the best medicine we have to offer most people, and that if we get people at a high fitness level, that improves their life expectancy and their morbidity and mortality better than any medications or other treatments we have to offer. That's amazing. I love that, Dr. Fields. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been such a fun and interesting conversation, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Well, this was fun, and so I hope that was useful information for you. Have a wonderful day. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks, to help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way. Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm-hmm.